Hello, we would like to welcome you to another episode of Reading Across the Curriculum, a book talk series on our Changemaker Conversations in Education podcast channel of the Alberta Regional Professional Development Consortia, or ARPDC. I'm Rick Gilson, Director of the Southern Alberta Office, and my co-host is Charlie Craig, the Director of the Central Alberta Office of ARPDC. Just before we get started, I am blessed to live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy here in Southern Alberta. That's Siksika, Kainai, Pikani, the Sutina, the Ayaxi Nakoda Nations, and Métis Region Number 3. All the people who make their homes in Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. I increasingly find myself thinking about being able to walk back in time and watch the land change as I do so. Buildings, roads disappearing, and with each step reflecting on all those who have walked this land before me and how much I have to learn from the knowledge keepers, the elders that live with us today. Together, we can work to make the best versions of ourselves and our country. And just want to share that with you. Charlie, do you have anything you'd like to share before you introduce our stellar guest today? Well, you know, I just think taking a moment to pause and uh, enjoy a big breath of fresh air and reflect upon the privileges of the season is a great way to sit and appreciate the land. Um, Today you would need an umbrella where I live, but nonetheless, you could appreciate the beauty of the rain and how it cleanses everything. Uh, we are pumped today, friends. Um, I still can't believe this is my job most of the time. And because we have Angela Stockman joining us today. And in case you don't know Angela Stockman, um, oh, you're in for a treat, I gotta say. So she currently lives in Kenmore, New York with her husband, John Remy, the rambunctious laboratory retriever, his brother, Winston and their sweet cat, Gerard. She's an instructional designer and an adjunct faculty member at Damon University in Amherst, New York. And she spends free time reading, duh, and writing, of course, on her porch, digging in the garden, hiking with her husband and puppy, visiting her daughters who are grown and flown, and cooking incredible meals with family and friends. She's the author of several amazing teacher resource books, most recently around multimodal composition, and we are just super excited that she's here to join us today. So welcome, Angela. Thanks so much for inviting me on, both of you. This is this is a very special opportunity, and I'm grateful to be here. <laughs> uh, yours, Charlie. Mine. This is my favorite question to ask. Angela? Yes. Let me first of all, let me get my shopping cart open. What are you <laughs> currently reading? Ooh, what am I currently reading? I'm actually rereading for probably the fifth time this year, a fabulous book called Zen Camera by David Ulrich. It is not an education book, but anyone who is passionate about documentation and capturing great images um, of learning stories or stories and in, in visual stories in any setting um, would love that book. That is what I'm reading right now. And it. in the and in your fiction world, in my fiction world, um, my daughter has is just nudging me over and over again to keep reading 
Taylor Jenkins Reid. And um, so I just downloaded on onto my, just, just listening count, because that is all the pleasure reading it I'm counts. getting in right now is in the car. Great. Uh, Malibu Rising, actually, is what I'm um, starting to read. She's promising me this is so good. Um, this was after I read... Evelyn Hugo and Gary or Carrie Soto is back. I read that. And so this is my third. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoy uh, Taylor Jenkins Reed, Jenkins Reed's books. Uh, it's like a nice palate cleanser yeah. um, as far as the brain goes. Mm -hmm. um, and I really liked Carrie Soto's back. I don't know a lot about tennis, but I appreciate No, I didn't either. Yeah. Although we have a lot of, we have a little bit of, of tennis um, interest in Buffalo, New York, because uh, Kim Bakula's daughter is a very uh, active and uh, successful and competitive tennis player. And uh, Kim Bakula Pagula owns our Buffalo Bills and she has had a lot of health struggles. So um, her daughter's story, I think, is one that people are watching with hope and interest and kind of excitement and energy for their family. That's right. You're in the Buffalo region. Good thing I switched I out of my Kansas City Chiefs hoodie. It's a really good thing you switched out of that jersey. Yes. <laughs> Although, you know, it's it's June and so um my vibe is a little different right now. Just if it were fall, that would be really problematic, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie always says, go sports teams. Go sports team. <laughs> yes. Yes. These are the things we do for our children. I don't know. My youngest is a huge. She was an athlete in high school and is just a total jock and loves all sports teams i don't know where she comes from her father and i were english majors that is all that is all speaking of an english major you are a writer a great writer and a teacher of writing can you talk to us a little bit about how you work as a writer uh, what influences your teaching and planning uh yeah i'm a very it's interesting it was um uh, my absolute pleasure to be invited to join a fiction writing group. Uh, a friend of mine, um, when I first opened, I have a writing studio here in Buffalo and I support K-12 writers in that studio outside of the school system. And when I first opened it in 2008, uh, a woman who was in her 80s wandered in as I was just setting up shop one day and asked if we had groups for adults. And I told her, that we did, even though we didn't. And she was the first one to join. And then a wonderful group of local writers, um, all of them beginners, came together and we began writing together. And I actually workshopped the, my very first book with that group. And now one of those women has invited me um, to join a new adult writing group with her, focused on fiction writing, which is brand new for me. I have not dedicated myself to fiction writing. I've long written books for teachers, um, specifically around writing workshop. I'm a very disciplined writer, and that's how I introduced myself to the group this week. We met um, just a couple days ago, and I write every morning, usually somewhere around 4.30 in the morning if menopause wakes me up, but no later than 5, 5.30. Uh, for a couple of hours before the day begins and everyone needs things for me and I have to work in my real job and that sort of thing. Um, 
I tend to alternate years of output and sharing stories about teaching and learning um, through my writing with years of kind of being quiet and listening and learning and taking all things in. And it's interesting how when I'm in one of those sort of postures, I miss being in the other one. Like right now I'm actively writing and I'm just longing to have more time to read um, and listen and learn. And so I'm really looking forward to that. My new manuscript is due August 1st. And so once that's sent off to my my editor, I'll be excited to, to kind of sink back into a research and learning role again, I think. Um, but yeah, the, my books are all influenced by the work that I do with kids. I was part of a really phenomenal learning community founded by a woman named Dr. Giselle Martin Kniep who passed away recently um, and unexpectedly. And it's been a devastating loss to all who knew her and learned with her. But in that learning community, which I joined in 2008, there was an expectation that we not only deepen our expertise and engage in our own inquiry work, but that we disseminated our expertise to the field, that we gave back to the field. And so I had just founded my writing studio in 2008. Kids were coming to write and work in this space with me. It was outside of the school system. And there were some students who were really showing up not very excited to be doing what I was asking them to do with pencil, pen, or keyboard. And um, it was through watching them and because I had the time to really document my learning in that space, and I didn't feel rushed, and I didn't feel afraid of getting it wrong, um, that I began to learn about from kids the representational power of materials and loose parts. And that many of them, when they make or draw their ideas first, the transition to written words uh, is a much more comfortable and rewarding experience for them. I didn't know why that was happening. And so each of the books that I've written is actually a reflection of the last phase of my own learning journey. Um, I try to figure out and chase answers to questions. And uh, when I get them, I share them back with the field. And that's really how the relationship between my teaching life and my own writing life works. Can, can you describe briefly a little bit more what this writing studio, you, you, you talk about it as my writing studio. It's not yeah. the classroom. You no. You were in the classroom at the same time, I think. But what what does the writing studio physically look like? How how might a teacher recreate it uh, in their classroom? Uh, so I was um, in the classroom teaching full time from 1993 until 2004. I was in middle school. I started at the elementary level. I spent a few years teaching seniors in high school and sophomores. Um, but the bulk of my career was the middle level. And I taught middle school for just over 10 years loved it, had the opportunity to work with some phenomenal staff developers, professional development facilitators. And I had told my husband that if one of them in particular ever left her job, I was going to apply for it because she worked on a small team and she got to learn directly from amazing people in the field. And I wanted to be able to learn directly from, you know, the people in a very small setting. 
And so I remember I was in my garden one Memorial Day weekend and my husband, this is when we looked at the news and actual newspapers, came out onto the porch <laughs> with the Sunday paper in his hand where there were these things called job listings. And he said, Katie's position is in the paper. You should apply for it. She was a regional staff developer. And so I did. And I became a literacy, a regional literacy um, staff developer here in Erie County for about four years. In that capacity, and I'm sure the two of you can completely relate to what I am about to say, I would visit schools and there would be in every room this warm ball of energy. It might consume just one teacher or two teachers out of 20 or 30. But those were the teachers who were really passionate about teaching writing. And they were also usually the least confident people in the room, but you could tell that they had the deepest expertise. And it was that lack of confidence that was almost like a surefire indicator that this was someone who was really committed to their learning and very passionate about it. And they were so committed to it that they were humbled by that learning. And this, these were, this was in the days before the internet. Nobody was connecting on the internet. Oprah was not yet on the Twitter. And I remember this because <laughs> the day she came onto the Twitter, everything changed. And we can blame Elon as much as we want, but I am telling you, Twitter was different before there was Oprah on the Twitter. And I love her. She's fabulous. It just changed everything. Anyway, this was before even Twitter and people being connected on social media, Facebook. And so every time I walked into one of those rooms, there would be just a handful of teachers. Everyone would be lovely, but there were a handful that really wanted to be connected to other people who loved teaching writing and learning about teaching writing. So I would come back and at the time I was really pretty good friends with my boss and I would say, we should start some sort of writing instruction community here, a professional learning community. And she was all for it. And I said, but the kids should be here too. And then she looked at me and said, that's a really good idea. And you really should do that on your own. Because <laughs> the state gets tangled up in this. There's going to be a million miles of red tape. You're never going to let have it be the way that you want it to be. And I had a very specific vision for what I wanted to create with this, this community of practice, essentially. And so I said, that's a fabulous idea. And I came home and I said to my husband, do you mind if I leave my very secure job in the field of New York State education, including my retirement and all of my benefits, including, and I am not exaggerating, world-class health insurance. It was top of the line health insurance to start a writing studio because I have this fabulous idea. And he said, do you mind living in a 1300 square foot house for the rest of your life? And I said, no. And he said, then you can do whatever you want. And so I did it. I left <laughs> and I started a writing studio and I have, I had the intention to go back and work on my PhD at that time. Um, my writing studio was, is comprised of K-12 writers. And every year I accept four teachers um, into the program and no more than four, because if we have more than four, our students start to feel more like subjects and it feels very awkward and uncomfortable. I really want to create and sustain 
a collaborative learning experience where kids and teachers are writing and learning about writing together. So we meet usually for a week in the summer and then on uh, weekends during the school year, COVID kind of knocked us off kilter with that. Uh, we did miss one year in 2020. We've been back meeting um, for one week in the summer. And then this year, I'm hoping to bring back our monthly sessions as well. Uh, teachers who join us, come because they are interested in engaging in their own inquiry work around writing instruction. They define their own questions, they pursue their own learning, and I'm there to help facilitate that, that, that learning in any way that I can and kind of partner with them. And I'm, I'm doing my own too. So all of us, whether we're teachers or kids, we rely on pedagogical documentation to study what it means to be a writer and share what we're learning about that. Um, and then each of us sort of spins off down our own path of deeper and more um, kind of customized and individualized inquiry work around that topic. And um, just like Giselle uh, had the expectation that we would commit to deep and meaningful learning and sort of disseminate what we learned back to the field and give things back. I have that expectation of the teachers who come uh, to studio as well. And they do one of the work. One of the things I noticed about your, because um, I get your newsletter, PS Friends, if you do not have a subscription to Angela Stockman's newsletter, you're missing out you, on teacher. a gold mine of stuff. <laughs> um, so I, of course, subscribed to your newsletter and um, was chewing about convincing my children that going for a week of writer's workshop in the state oh, of New York would, would be, be so exciting. a good idea for summer holidays. <laughs> I might have to do it next year because it conflicts with basketball camp. Anyway, yes, this is my biggest competition as I moved it from right? August to July this year. Uh, because I am going to be in Kelowna when we usually have studio in Buffalo. Um, and because I moved it to July, I'm now competing with baseball and all hope is lost. Well, one of the things I noticed in the scope and sequence of your week is that there's a lot of time. And I, I don't want to say not writing, but there's a lot of think and play and build and talk and question. And I know that's part of the work that you do and the work that you support teachers in. What are some pieces of advice that you offer to classroom teachers who feel like there is a sense of urgency around pencil must be paper, like we must get something down and they're not comfortable sitting in the process. I think it's really it's usually very important for me to honor that fear and to respect it. It's real. It matters. Their performance on standardized assessments matters. What those assessments reveal to us matters. And it matters in different ways inside of different places. And to shrug that off, I think, is incredibly naive. Um, and honestly, if we can really just open conversations about what it means cognitively to produce writing, and especially around transcription and the power of transcription, 
usually people begin to understand that I am not coming in from outer space with my bucket full of Legos and clay and paint and saying, let's just throw all caution to the wind because the tests don't matter anyway. Um, and I need you to be a bolder teacher. That is not how I play with people at all. That is not honest or um, helpful in any way. I want students to be able to produce high quality writing written words and I want them to be able to produce really well on any test that they have to take. My daughter just took the, the LSATs here in the States. That's a really important test if you want to go to law school and you need to know how to put down written words really well. Where it kind of um, falls off the rails and what we haven't had enough conversation around probably is um, cultural differences and how where we come from culturally actually has significant influence on how we produce written words. And I think that we tend to talk about the writing process as the, you know, quotation marks, capital letters, writing process. Writing is a process. What that process looks like from one writer to another can be a little bit different. And there are actually big chunks of that process that are really important for some writers that we have not um, dedicated enough time and energy to in our schools here in the West. And one of them is around transcription. Now, some people define transcription merely as the production of written words, and they focus on things like spelling and handwriting. It is that. But it's a little bit more complicated than that as well. And if we can understand that in order to produce high quality writing, we need to be able to represent our ideas well. And oftentimes, if I'm working with a young and inexperienced writer, a writer who self-defines as struggling, because I don't tend to define any writer as a struggling writer anymore, um, but if they're self-defining that way, what has usually happened is that someone has asked them to represent their ideas using pen, pencil, or keyboard, and they've asked them to do that rapidly. And because they are struggling to use those materials and modes to represent their ideas, they think that they are not a good writer. But when I begin talking with those writers and they're able to orally express their ideas or draw them or build them with Legos or clay or any other sort of small loose parts, what they tell me is typically incredibly sophisticated. Or if it's not incredibly sophisticated, it's at least coherent. And it's ticking the boxes when I'm looking at our standards um, here in New York State, especially. A writer will start working with me and I'm able to see that you do have a claim. You do have evidence to support this claim. You're already thinking about how somebody might argue with you. You know how you want to refute what they're saying. They can do all of this orally, but the minute I push pencil, pen, keyboard in front of them, they will lower the complexity of their ideas to meet their print power. Learning more about this has, has really awakened me to the representation 
quantitative power of loose parts in drawing. If we know what the structure of a form is, claim, evidence to support the claim, anticipating a counterclaim, how we might tackle refutation, we can use any mode of expression and material to represent that. And those materials or the audio or video recording of what we said, it serves as a container and we can work with that. We can listen to it over and over again. The really powerful piece about transcription that we're not talking enough about is how incredibly powerful it is to listen to what we would like to write aloud or write down on paper. If we can say it aloud and we can audio record it one small bit at a time, tell me what you want your claim to be. Describe the beginning of your story. What character are we going to meet? Where will they be? Tell me the problem. What do you want to teach us about brain cells? What did you learn in your research? One little piece, build it, and then they'll look at that build and they'll talk with me. And the build is reminding them of what their intentions are. As they're talking, though, we can record that. Their ability, the invitation to just listen to themselves over and over again as they try to produce the written words is gold. It's absolutely gold. So for me, that whole piece around transcription is incredibly powerful. And it's something that we haven't, that I think a lot of people have known about. We've always talked about things like rehearsal inside of the writing process and, you know, telling our story across our fingers. It's, it's a little bit more than that, that I find some writers really need. Um, and the use of loose parts and materials can help writers represent their ideas, contain their ideas serve as like anchors for them as they're speaking to their ideas and then that transition to written words if they can listen back again is is a much smoother ride for most of them can, can you take a second and talk about this phrase for our listeners loose parts yeah so if you are a reggio inspired teacher then you know that loose parts are things that we can hold in our hands and we can mix them and remix them rapidly so legos and blocks are loose parts i can snap them together but then i can remix them and build something entirely new very quickly um, clay is a loose part Play-Doh is a loose part. Watercolor is one of the loosest parts um, in how it mixes and, um, and can remix as we move our brush to a different area of our paper. Some of my favorite loose parts are man-made. They are things like Lego and Canucks and different sorts of blocks and Play-Doh. Some of my favorite loose parts are recycled materials, things like pop tabs and soda caps and um, cardboard and bubble wrap and tinfoil, um, shoe boxes and materials that would otherwise end up in a landfill that we can turn into builder or maker materials that help us create things. By far my favorite loose parts though are natural elements. Things like acorns and seashells and small pebbles and stones, pine cones. Um, my husband, every 
couple of weeks, I will come downstairs into the kitchen and there will be a little pile of something on the counter. He will take the dogs for a walk. And last week he found this tree. Um, I, he collects these things that look like really prickly chestnuts. I love mm. them. And they kind of stick together and kids can like build all sorts of like cool models out of them they, they're real sticky like burrs almost only they're bigger natural velcro yeah that's how they behave i love them and they're beautiful where they fall in our neighborhood it was springtime and he came when i came downstairs there was one of those next to the flower that just opened in the spring so the beginning goes there you have it the spring in the fall, you have both of them. And it led us to do a little bit of research. It's called a gum tree. And I just, I absolutely love it. Loose parts that come from nature are my favorite. I do have a rule that we need to, and it wasn't always this way. It's something I've learned from experience, but it is dangerous to send children out into the wild with scissors. Um, <laughs> especially if the wild is a suburban neighborhood and people are kind of uptight about, you know, their shrubbery. Um, <laughs> so we, uh, we talk about how you can take what has fallen, but you need to leave the rest. Natural elements are beautiful to build with because they have texture and scent that is far more delicate um, than any man-made material typically can be. Things like feathers, right? Um, you're not going to find that in a toy store necessarily. Maybe in an art store, but then they're just replicating natural elements there anyway. So those are my favorite. Loose parts are things we can hold in our hands and mix and remix and build and make things with. Hmm. Sounds like mm -hmm. too much fun. It's a lot of it's fun. All the fun some might say. So we've we've got some time scheduled with you coming up, you and Rebecca and Matthew. Can you talk to us a little yeah. bit about Camp Rewrite? Speaking of fun, bring your own s'mores, friends. Yes. Um, this was just such a beautiful invitation. Rebecca reached out to me uh, and to Matt. She dropped an email and said, listen, I don't know about you, but I'm really craving a certain kind of professional learning and I don't see it anywhere. Let's make it. And I was really intrigued. And uh, I think what is exciting me most about Camp Rewrite is it's this nine week experience where Rebecca is sort of heading up three weeks and Matt's heading up three weeks and I'm heading up three weeks. We're gonna be there hanging out, right? But Every time it's it's I'm up to bat essentially or Rebecca or Matt, we're going to be dropping one one hour at least of asynchro professional learning related to something that we're kind of passionate about and known for in our work, right? Um, so we'll we'll be sharing this asynchronous, very useful, right, practical something that teachers will hopefully be inspired by and leave them feeling equipped to go back to school. Um, and doing something new that will kind of be refreshing. We're also opening up conversation around that piece throughout the entire week. So we can have these slow chats that kind of unfold as people want and need them to. And then we're inviting guest speakers who kind of 
you know, ha have written the companion books, maybe, or who speak to the issues um, that have influenced our own work. And they might even have been the originators of some of those ideas, right? And so we have this great lineup of guests that are coming on as well. Um, some of them have been publicly announced, but some of them have not. For instance, my editor, Lauren Davis from Routledge is coming on when I'm and during one of my weeks. Yeah, because we also want to really talk with people about revision and rewriting. And if you had the opportunity to do something over again, you know, what, how would you revise your thinking, revise the way you approached your learning, revise your work? What is it that's in need of revision? What would you want to rewrite? And I'm excited to talk with my, my editor, Lauren, um, about how that's played out in my relationship with her um, and the books that I've written. And if I could go back and change anything, you know, what is it that I would change? Um, I know Trevor Alio is going to come on as well when I'm there. And all of us have these sort of sort of secret guests that haven't been publicly announced on top of um, the lineup that, that we've announced of just incredible Matt Kate, like uh, Kate and Maggie Roberts are coming. Phenomenal people who are coming on. And I think what's so exciting about this, if it, you know, from my perspective, it is like this, this, it is, it's like a camp where everyone's just sort of coming together. There are gonna to be different fires burning at different times. You can kind of go, you know, approach one and sit down and have a chat with people. Um, use your feet to leave if you want to. Um, invest the time that you can. Nothing's gonna disappear. Everyone's gonna have access throughout all of next school year. Um, but I think it's the variety of invitations and that common thread around revision, rewriting, and not having to show up perfect and not having like, I'm excited because I don't have to perform. I can like just show up and have an authentic conversation, share some things that I hope are really useful, listen if people say, hey, I was really hoping you would share this, or do you know anything about that? Have you done this sort of work? And I can kind of go into my drive folder and say, oh, I did this thing this year, you might want this. Stuff I've never even thought about sharing possibly. It's, it's the conversations I think that are gonna be richly varied and slow and we have time to kind of linger over them um, that I'm excited about, so yeah. So basically, uh, we've been describing this uh, here in Alberta. As you're aware, we've created a shadow uh, yeah. camp, uh, an Alberta campground, yeah. and, and we've got people registering. I saw today we're up to 39 people in the Alberta campground, and we subsequently take those names and emails and send them to Rebecca, and she registers them in the program. And uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about that slow conversation piece. Is that being accomplished in an online forum? Yeah. I, I think so. But I think there's also a couple occasions where there will be some live opportunity mm -hmm. to tune in and engage live. Yeah. So everything that we're doing is happening through Substack. And anyone who is registered will have access to that Substack um, through next school year. Uh, we want people to be able to return to that space and access things. We are also hosting weekly conversations with our guest speakers. Those are going to be live on Zoom. Um, we are, you know, inviting our speakers to determine dates and times for those recordings, uh, but they will be also recorded so that if people aren't able to attend the live session, 
they're going to be able to access that recording for up to a year as well. We are going to be sharing our modules, our professional learning modules will drop um, at the start of each week. Those will be shared right in Substack as well. It's sort of like a one-stop shop um, for everything that's happening with Camp Rewrite. Uh, and we're going to be lingering in there. There will be, um, you know, sort of impromptu invitations for coffee hours and fireside chats, in addition to the things that that we've uh, that we've already promoted. So as we as we look at that, uh, Angela, I, th I think you've been involved in, uh, and I think the others have shared some of the emails. Uh, <laughs> when you first heard, hey, I think it was from Matt. I, I reached out to Matt first. Yeah. And, and when uh, Matt took it to you and said, hey, there's this guy, Rick Gilson and Tony <laughs> Craig, are, are they okay or, or whatever? <laughs> They didn't. They didn't say, "Are they okay?" But Matt forwarded your email, and I was like, "That's Rick. He's fabulous. You definitely want to be." And then Rebecca, of course, came back in and said, "Oh, I'm doing some work with them this year too," and um, and it was just lovely. Yeah, I was very, very excited. And well, and I did say, and they can attest to this, that your teachers are phenomenal. And I'm was just all the more excited to have all of you there because I've been in rooms with all of you before. Uh, and we, we're going to use this this podcast to go out um, next week um, or very, very quickly here uh, to help uh, draw more people to it. What we're doing is uh, Charlie, myself, and Brent uh, Gilson mm -hmm. are going to engage in a couple of campfire chats taking the things that are dropped and the conversations that are dropped and then looking at Alberta's curriculum and having a, a conversation around the campfire about um, how these things could be applied where inside. Where does it fit in this curriculum? How could we use this? Uh, how could we uh, contribute to, to the understanding? It, it sounds very similar uh, as you describe it here. It's a little bit like... Uh, I, I did my doctoral uh, work online mostly. I had some mm -hmm. in-person residential residence periods in Washington D.C., but um, yeah, that was quite cool. But uh, you know, where you've got a conversation here, you're reading these things in the Substack. There's some interactivity. I enjoyed the posts, the responses to the yeah. things that we were reading, and I still have friends now, decades later, more than a decade later that I stay in touch with from that exercise um, because of the things we agreed and disagreed on as we were working through different articles. Yeah. And I see the possibilities here. And I think that's what we're really hoping for is that people will be able to build relationships and find new colleagues and new friends in the work because it is a space that they can come back to where new invitations are going to be offered every week for nine weeks. Um, and some people are going to be able to dedicate more time, you know, during some parts of the summer and less during others. And I'm, I'm excited to see how it all unfolds. One thing I think um, that I've learned, you know, perhaps most recently with our Alberta Lit Institute, but um, in previous learnings with you, Angela, and with other um, presenters, sometimes when you're the only language arts teacher or as the English or language arts teacher, the way you view things, your pedagogy is different than other people's pedagogy. And so coming to a space like Camp Rewrite, 
it doesn't feel like more work. It's that energy boost that you need to get you inspired and connected to soar for the next year, you know? Yeah, I think things like this, you can decide the level of visibility that you want to have inside of the space. And, um, and you can, I think, lurk a bit if that's where you want, you know, if that's how you want to show up. You can lurk for some conversations and, and be a leader, you know, inside of others where you feel more passion or have more expertise. I think that people will have the opportunity to, to share where they come from um, and to do so in a way where I think they'll be respected and where we're going to be modeling respect for different um, sorts of practices for certain, but I know myself when I feel like I'm showing up and I am often showing up to spaces where I know I don't do it the way everyone else does it. Um, sometimes I don't want to be in the center of the circle, you know, kind of sharing what I do and inviting everyone to sort of throw rocks or question or challenge or even honestly get excited about it. Every I say this to my husband sometimes when, when I've had long weeks where I miss connecting on social, um, but I know that if I even share one thing, it's going to open up a huge conversation, a very positive one too. But like, for instance, I'll share something on Twitter and Trevor will reply, Brent might reply, someone else is going to reply. And then I feel guilty if I can't get back to them within five minutes to reply back. So sometimes we want to hang back. Sometimes we just want to watch and listen and learn and maybe private message people. I, and I think that this opportunity gives people the, the chance to show up in a way that's most comfortable for them too which is neat that's awesome i'm excited um this is like not linear in my thought process so i apologize for for jumping around but you know <laughs> i know you that you love to use um loose parts in your writing and create space for students to share their ideas before we do that transcription work because this is um one of our themes that runs through our podcasts are, are is reading or books across the curriculums do you have a, like a collection or a handful maybe two or three titles that you find yourself defaulting to with teachers or with kiddos to help grow the process or inspire um, around using loose parts or just in writing in general, like an, an inspirational mentor text, or wow. I really love this picture book because I stop on page five and they write the rest or whatever. Yeah. Um, I love Miriam Belaglovsky, Lisa Daly's books, the Loose Parts books. I think there are four different volumes. And those books inspire me um, around materials and the gathering of materials. Uh, I also love Diane Cashin's work and her blog uh, is phenomenal and she's very active on Twitter. Her blog is just amazing and has been some of the best learning that I've done around this work too. Um, those are two people or three people whose work I return to over and over again when I'm thinking about materials. Misty Patterson is another person um, who is just so inspiring. Jessica Vance's work with learning walls and inquiry is something that I'm really sinking into this summer. Her Instagram is amazing. Jessica Vance, go find her. She's fabulous. 
fabulous. Um, hangs out with Trevor McKenzie and is just all the things. I'm so loving everything that she shares on her Instagram. I will say this though, and this is, I am not brown nosing in any way and she knows it. Um, it is really, no, it, it's so true. And you're going to laugh when I start to say this, but there are books about um, writing that are my absolute favorite when I think about traditional craft right and and doing it in a more contemporary way when I think about you know what books do I turn to and who inspires me the most when I'm thinking about having kids produce written words who is inspiring me the most and it's Rebecca and Allison <laughs> like it, it really is and that's why it was such an honor she, when Rebecca reached out years ago and asked me if I would co-present with her and Tani McGregor and Allison at NCTE and I was just totally gobsmacked by that inv invitation and then um, to be able to do this with her as well and I and I'm, I know um, that she knows this but writing all of the books that that they have written are just absolutely phenomenal. And so when I think about, um, you know, the, there's the loose parts piece and, and there's the, the, the making piece and the inquiry piece. And that is definitely Diane and, and um, Miriam Belagoski and Lisa Daly and, and it's definitely them. But when I think about producing high quality written words, um, yeah, it, it is, it is, my friend Rebecca and her work Love there um, that I'm constantly, you know, referring people to and, um, and Shauna Coppola's work as well. And Shauna, you know, comes from a bit of a different place in that um, she's very much about multimodal composition yes but bigger than that and I think more purpose-driven uh in intentional in the why than even my work has been in the past so those are the people that I'm constantly impressed by and blown away by could could I invite you I just was having this conversation through text with uh Brent earlier today actually yeah. in terms of grade level and I, I don't want to put anybody in boxes uh, okay and I'm, I'm going to start with um, the the lineup that you have for camp rewrite teachers of what grade levels can expect to have access to who or how many like who would be at camp rewrite that would particularly if you're in K3, you don't want to miss this week. If you, and you see what I mean? And if right. you're doing four, six or five to eight, nine to 12, who, who do you want to make sure you touch on? And, and are all of them covered? I'm, I've been saying that yes. I believe they are. I think that you're going to find, especially with our our guest speakers that are coming on, this is interesting. You know, I would say um, I'm definitely going to be speaking more. It's I'm going to be speaking. I'm going to be doing kind of a split. I think um, a lot of the work that I do in the field is especially interesting to primary and intermediate level teachers. And that's kind of what I'll be offering a lot around in my own work. Um, however, 
the guest speakers that I intend to play with are high school teachers mostly, right? Mm. And I also plan to share a lot when I'm working in the field, I work a lot K-5, but when I'm working on my campus, I teach advanced composition, sociolinguistics, and I teach assessment methods. So I will also be sharing perspective at the, at the college and university level and things that I'm doing in my classroom there as well. And then my guest speakers come in and they maybe have a different sort of age group that they tend to work with more often. I know Rebecca, for instance, does a lot of work at the high school level, but Naval has a lot of experience, um, you know, and, and so I think each of us is going to be sharing from the space that we work in. Um, and we have it all covered K-12, but even during those weeks where Rebecca might be facilitating the conversation and she might work with writers who are a little bit older or more sophisticated, um, she's having guest speakers on who are going to be able to speak um, to teachers who might work with, with younger children as well. And so I think that there's a nice sort of balance there. But I, I love how you identify, like, K to five. I remember when you first came to Lethbridge, we had that wonderful day where the fire alarm was pulled and there was yeah. all manner of standing out in the parking lot. For a, the weather we, was nice. It was, but your suitcase of loose objects. Now, I didn't know that's what it was at yeah. the time, but that's in effect what it was. It was just incredible. It's like, hey, what a tickle trunk of uh, <laughs> joy we have here. And uh, so you cover all the greats. You, you talked about Naval. She could carry a conversation on postdoctoral work and, and writing yeah. in that regard. And then all of her things, uh, her um, multicultural um, illustrated books for right. K, th K through, right? Right. So th it's fantastic. Uh, I, I think I'm, we're just, we're, we're very excited to participate. I mean, I, I was an English teacher when I was practicing teaching that I've retired from that, but just love the learning and the fact that the learning fills the tank. Yeah. We, we all hear uh, about people, I'm tired, I'm tired. And we just had this amazing day in Alberta with amazing presenters in our literacy institute. And I was like, there are people who would go thousands of miles away to a conference and not get a day like the day we had here. Oh, and that's wonderful. People, people were too tired to be, to sign up and spend that time or, or put that time aside, missing the point. This fills your Tank. It really does. And I think we just wanted to create an experience where people can sort of stretch out and get the kinks out and also fill up and reflect. But we wanted to take the pressure off mm -hmm. and we wanted to loosen up the structure and we wanted to create enough uh, sort of enough to choose from where people could really leave feeling like they they got something that that they needed and they had a chance to to really um just sort of breathe exactly we're going to keep the registration open at our end all the way through the summer because right. alberta teachers don't get off i talked to some poor elementary teachers this morning 
Their last day with students is June 29th. And, yep. then, and then their division scheduled a professional learning day for the 30th. And then they start the summer. But yeah. they did say, hey, the professional learning day might be pretty light. <laughs> <laughs> that is a like, long June. Yeah, it is a long June. And so away we go. I think Charlie's got one more question for you. And it's kind of where we started. Well, it is kind of where we started. And I think maybe this question will become a teaser into another podcast episode for the fall. Oh, okay. That's what I'm thinking. Because this topic is huge. And okay. it is a topic that is fresh. And it's a topic that is gaining a lot of traction. And I know, because I've read some of your stuff already, um, that I'm going to appreciate your <laughs> thoughts and perspectives related to AI in oh. the English classroom. Mm -hmm. um, because some of the reactions that folks are having are not as welcoming or thoughtful around how we could leverage and use AI in a meaningful way in our classrooms. So give us a little taster, Angela, about the work that you're doing related to this now, maybe how you use AI in your work as a writer, because I know you use it. Mm -hmm. um, and just where you're, where's your head at right now related to, to AI? I think that I am cautiously optimistic. You know, I, I think that I am, we've all been around the block and we know that there's going to be some bad stuff here, right? Also, this is not an opt-in culture. This is happening and it's here. And I think it's really important. I've always been the person who feels very strongly that if we can access it and children can access it, it's really important that we lead the way around how to do it well and how to use it well. So for me, um, I think first and foremost about, and this is one of my gravest concerns, people who know how to use AI well are going to use it well. And then others are going to assume that they are better at what they do than they were before AI, which means that people who have access are going to enjoy privileges and advancement um, and rewards that people who are not accessing AI and using it well are not going to enjoy. There's going to be a lot of inequity here. And so we want to be really sensitive to that. There's also the issue, you know, that that algorithm is built on where we come from and where we come from is deeply inequitable places. And so it kind of kicks up all of these questions for me around what does it look like to use this thing well? I think we need to learn how to talk with it and talk to it in a way that can mitigate its problematic features. I think that we need to be able to, you know, the people that are afraid, every time I engage in conversations with people who are just terrified about this, their perspective about how it works is that you ask it something and it gives you a dissertation that is perfectly <laughs> composed and that is going to replace everyone. And that's just not necessarily the case. We always have to evaluate what it's giving back to us. I've used it a ton at this. I've used ChatGPT 4.0 quite yes. a bit every day at this point. Um, and usually it gets me something at, at the very most, it gets me something that's proficient. Proficient enough for me to remix, adapt, build off of, 
I need to ask it additional questions. I need to refine my questions. I need to, um, you know, be able to kind of dance with it a little bit. For me, once I get past the issues of equity, um, I really start to think about, the, I, I think the way that I use it most is it does stuff for me. It automates some of the things that I need to do and it's then opening up time for me to think differently and better. I'll give you a really good example of that. I taught an assessment methods course this semester. So I had 25 pre-service teachers. They're all 21, 22 years old. And part of that class involved creating assessment plans for students, imaginary students. So what's cool about the project is it's world building and they're basically creating a fictional environment and a fictional learning story and fictional students. And we spend the whole semester playing with them, right? But as the semester winds down, my students need to create um, assessment plans for learning disabled students. They have very limited experience with learning disabled students, learning disability in general, let alone understanding how to situate assessment inside of that sort of world. And so what was happening was I was getting these very, quite honestly, stereotypical um, descriptions of students with learning disabilities and very shallow assessment plans that were not meaningfully aligned. Um, at all. And so I, my foray into to ChatGPT with my students was inviting them to use ChatGPT to create profiles of learning disabled students. And they had to learn how to ask and re-ask and refine questions and ask more to get to a place where they now have a really round character instead of a stock character that they were working with, it leveled up their thinking and their design work um, so beautifully. And in that way, you know, it opened this really great conversation around was that cheating? Is it cheating if I use ChatGPT to try and design assessment plans once I'm in the classroom? Well, I don't know, but I do know this. I've met a lot of teachers who really struggle to understand learning disabilities and who also struggle to create really healthy and meaningful assessments for students who are learning disabled. And if there is a way for them to do that better sooner, rather than waiting 20 years and gaining 20 years of experience and leaving all of those kids kind of in the wake of that experience, you know, with less than ideal support, I think that there's some real potential for AI to help us meet the needs of learners better and sooner. Um, but it also requires us to then, my students, they need to have a network. And, and this is the thing that's so fascinating to me. It is true that when I use ChatGPT, I am able to work with it productively as long as I have deep expertise in the thing that I'm asking it about. Mm -hmm. What if I am asking it to do something and I am not capable of evaluating the quality of that response? Well, then I do things like I message Brent or my friend Jen or I message Rebecca or I, you know, I ask someone who has that expertise to tell me what they think.
So in a way, what's really cool about this is it is strengthening our networks if we're using it well. It's, it's turning us back toward one another because I don't know for sure if that was a quality response. So what do you think? We still need diverse perspectives. We still need experts in the field um, in order to, to use it well. And so I think that there's some real potential for it to deepen our connections to other people, to strengthen the bonds that hold our learning networks together. Um, and it, it is going to humble us, I think, in a way that could be a really beautiful thing. I just love this. I just love this too, especially with the two of you. Well, we have to it, it uh, we have to draw to a conclusion here, and that seemed as Charlie indicated in, in posing the question, a really great place to jump off. We go into the summer. We're all planning to participate in Campry, right? To I can't wait to, to see you there. It, it, I'm still uh, getting over building that series of multimodal literacies that I participated in with you and Charlie earlier, where we were doing all manner of for this old guy crazy things that I was enjoying. So, but yeah. but, but but still, it was great. And and as I think on this, and particularly your piece at the end, where you said, you know, when you have some good working knowledge of the subject matter already, and you pose questions and you even maybe have some other resources you think you can ask it to go and check and compare and contrast against here's here's this article please check this article and this article and give me summaries of what's right. in, what's in common and what's those are very effective i i find i i use it quite a bit as well yes and uh, and it it just opens it opens the door so don't be afraid but also don't be gullible right uh, you, you know like because there's going to be some and it's going to make mistakes it made massive mistakes uh, there's another book out there or some other writing out there that is valley of the bird tail but it's not the same as the book over my shoulder here valley right. of the bird tail uh from Andrew Stobel Snyderman and Douglas. Uh, yeah, ask it to describe right? yourself and it will come like <laughs> it, it, it'll, it'll give you something. Yeah, you should see who has reviewed my work. I wish I could, you know, like I have these like 10 star reviews from New York Times bestselling authors on the books I've written. It's like, really? It's just <laughs> fascinating. I'm Fantastic. ever so much more prolific than I assume. And, and you are. <laughs> and, and I do want to emphasize to our listeners you uh your books are are awesome and great places oh, for people you. especially the last two and, and not that the because you divided multimodal work the first is k to four five k to five and then yeah. six to twelve and having both of those and comparing and contrasting and you say well but i teach in grade 10 why would i get the k to four there's or K to five because there's some things in there that you can use with some kids that are at a little bit different level in right. your classroom and make it work. Angela, thank you so much. Uh, it was so great to be here. Thank you. We we really look forward to visiting some more and getting you back out to Alberta. I would love that now that that we're in the after times. <laughs> <laughs> I even have well, a date in mind where you can focus on that K to five window. I'll be in touch. I would love that, Rick. It would be great. So, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with another episode in the coming days, and we're getting very near to taking a pause on our podcast for the summer. 
Um, but uh, in order that we can attend and participate fully in Camp Rewrite. And uh, once again, invite our Alberta and, and fellow Canadian listeners who wish to join in on the Alberta campground. That's a great entry point for you as we partner with our colleagues in the States to have uh, a great opportunity to replenish and rejuvenate. So on behalf of Charlie and Angela, thank you very much for tuning in and keep on reading. Reading.